You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Olivia Crummel. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Callum Jaspin. Hi, Liv. Emma Shepard. Hello. And for his last Mumbrella Cast appearance, Xander Wilson. G'day, g'day. This week's Mumbrella Cast is brought to you by Sesame. If you're drowning in a sea of Insta Reels and HTML5 content, you need Sesame. With Sesame, you can create and share branded content in seconds. It's marketing magic. Go to sesame.com. That's S-E-S-I-M-I dot com. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Callum will be talking to Nine's Chief Sales Officer, Michael Stevenson, and Head of Content Production and Development, Adrian Swift, about whether Nine's upcoming content slate is playing it safe, as suggested by some media buyers we spoke to. If you could see the white knuckle ride that was, will our formats work in 2021, you would know that there's nothing safe in television. If there is a possibility, we will see a bit of reality programming fatigue in the near future. It's a little bit like someone in America in 1963, you know, halfway through I Love Lucy going, gee, I think sitcoms have had their day. I don't, I don't think it works like that. And whether there are plans to shift primetime bookings to Nine's Galaxy. And the only reason we haven't turned Nine Galaxy on for primetime on the main channel is that it's not the way media buyers buy TV yet. But first, the week's topics. The team discusses a recent flurry of senior female industry appointments. An update on streaming as Foxtel launches Flash, following recent research reports from Deloitte and others. And Joan Warner steps down from Commercial Radio Australia after two decades at the helm. This past weekend, we had the announcement of two new female CEOs in the advertising world, with Cheryl Majoram returning to Australia to join DDB Sydney and Kirsty Muddles stepping into the CEO role at Cummins & Partners. Callum, can you run us through these recent movements? Yeah, so as you mentioned there, Liv, there has been quite a few recently, um, including those two there. Marjoram is coming back after two decades, which saw her working at a number of major agencies in London, which has included Ogilvy & Mather, Crispin Porter and & Bugusky, and Saatchi and & Saatchi, amongst others. She's replacing Priya Patel, who has also moved up within the, co- the company, um, now heading up DDB New Zealand, or Aotearoa. Muddle has stepped into the CEO role over at Cummins & Partners Australia, which is a role that was formerly held by Chris Jefferos, who was one of the founding partners of the agency. Um, the, the news this week cleared up a bit of confusion, which you know earlier this year when he was reported to be uh, moving into a part-time role to help his family brewing business, um, whereas Cummins cleared up and said that he actually did leave uh, the agency earlier in the year. Um, So there has been a little bit of confusion over what Sean Cummins' title remains over there. Um, A couple of people got in contact with me this week as one told me he had still listed on his LinkedIn that he was global CEO. Um, This has now been removed. uh, I I mean, I take that person's word, but I can't confirm that myself. Um, From what I understand, though, and what has been clarified is that he is the global chief creative officer. And then in recent months, we saw one of Australia's longest tenured CEOs, Melinda Gertz, step down as national CEO of Leo Burnett. Um, She was replaced by Emma Montgomery, who um, had been uh, selected by Gertz as the successor. And then this week, 
Kate Silver has been appointed to run Leo's Melbourne office. Um, another one of the biggest stories in recent months has been Amy Buchanan moving across from OMD to uh, that Group MCO role. You know, that, that's one that's been discussed quite heavily on this podcast in the last couple of weeks. And I know that will be one to look out for in the future. The position she left does remain vacant. And Peter Horgan said to me a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of Omnicom Media Group, he's also acting as the interim CEO of OMD at the moment while the search goes on um and he did say that he would he would really love to replace uh, a high profile female with another high profile female that being a priority but also um you know that doesn't that completely block off the search but he said that he's cast the net wide to find the right person as this is the best job going in advertising but it's also important to note that omd have a bit of a history of hiring within uh and then elsewhere you know we've seen bridget alkima uh, move into a CCO role at Clems Wellington, as well as being appointed to the gr- the Global Cleminger Creative Board. While one of the one of the other bigger moves recently was Les Timar stepping into at the start of the coming year uh, Robert Morgan's CEO role at Cleminger Group, and his replacement um, at GRA Causeway was recently announced to be Kirsten Mully. Yes, certainly a lot of girl power going on in the industry at the moment. Um, great to see more women taking on these senior roles and in in some cases, you know, stepping into roles uh, previously filled by men, which is fantastic. Although with these two most recent ones, obviously one was, as you said, uh, Priya, who moved across to a senior role in New Zealand with DDB Group, Uh which, you know, so we've seen just a switch there in terms of senior female leaders. But the Cummins appointment is quite significant. They've previously had only really male senior leaders from what I can see. Yeah, well, before I get onto the Cummins one, it's actually interesting because Priya Patel, the role she stepped into was actually, she was taking that over for, from a man as well. That was Justin Mode, who has moved to um, the Monkeys. Um, so so uh, Patel is actually the first woman to be taking on that. Um, that national role within DDB. Um, but yeah, on, on Cummins, uh, so it's important to note that with the glo- within the global operations of Cummins and Partners, which does include a New York outpost as well, that's also headed up by an Australian woman in um, Olivia Santelli. Cummins first opened the office in 2010 as an indie operation, originally as Cummins Ross with longtime colleague Jason Ross. Um, there were other six other partners who had investments in the business at the time, those being um, Jefferis, who we mentioned before, Kirsty Muddle, who we've just been speaking about right now, um, Stephen Tortosa, Faye Colley, Monique Swallow, and Michelle Wenzel. So there were female partners there, um, and a few of them having left, a few of them still there. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it's, it's been a traditionally male-dominated senior role there. And from what I can gather, Cummins is a pretty polarizing figure within the industry, and many have uh, so many have seen this one bringing in a female to replace what has been a male role as being a pretty significant um, appointment. And Cal, you hosted three female CEOs at Havas Group Australia on the podcast recently to speak about this movement, um, as well as doing a bit of industry chatter. What are people thinking about um, in terms of progression in the industry right now? Yeah, so as you would expect, um, there is acknowledgement that progress has been made and, you know, the conditions are improving to allow women to more seamlessly step into these senior roles. But that doesn't discount the fact that there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, One area that does 
seem to have seen a little bit of progress being made is in regards to parental leave. Um, we're seeing more of an industry standard being offered with paternity leave uh, um, kind of coming in line with uh, maternity leave. So just last week, we saw strategic insights agency Nature roll out a new policy giving staff six months of paid paternal leave, which is around double the industry standard. Um, and also last month, Clemenger Group introduced a new parental leave policy giving up to 20 weeks based on tenure. Um, Simone Gupta, who is, the, uh, who is sorry, the CEO of Harvest PR, who's on the podcast with me, um, said at the time that agencies have not historically been at the cutting edge of supporting young parents with kids, and they have always been a little bit behind in some of, against some of the other corporate industries. She also said what attracted her to the business is that it's somewhere where you don't have to pretend to be a parent, to, sorry, to not be a parent. Um, Aldington, Laura Aldington, CEO of Host, have us also adding that they're not just three women CEOs, they're also mums of young kids. So that really gives them an insight into the pressure points exist for women in the industry, allowing them to create policy initiatives to try and counter that. So interesting to note that Gupta, amongst other industry figures that I have spoken to um, in recent weeks and in the lead up to this podcast today, Notice that there, there is, while there is increased opportunity for women in the industry, we are lagging behind still in terms of, sorry, in relation to other countries, in particular those being the US and the UK. And this is something we spoke about in the podcast, not only to, in terms of um, progression in this area, but in most areas of diversity and inclusion. Um, someone that I spoke to went just as far to say is that they couldn't believe how far Australia was behind when they moved over here. That was, you know, about six or seven years ago, and that sexist behaviour in the industry is still rampant. It's important to note also that while there are women increasingly moving into these senior roles uh, of like CEOs and creative directors and such in agencies, a lot of them are ultimately still working into men. Someone noting to me that it's important to note that the vast, vast majority of the holding group roles are inoccupied by men. That is that is the truth. And unfortunately, yeah, it does seem that the, there's good progress, but still room for improvement. Next, a look at streaming consumption habits as Foxtel launches Flash and IQ5. Earlier this week, Deloitte published its 10th edition of the Media Consumer Survey, which showed that 47% of Australians are willing to view advertising on their streaming services in exchange for a discount. In a Year 13 study, 32% of Gen Z respondents said they spend one to two hours a day on streaming services. And this morning, Foxtel finally revealed the details of its long-rumoured news streaming service flash. Xander, you've been keeping a close eye on the various streaming competitors this year. How serious is Foxtel's latest service off the back of its recent IQ5 launch? Yeah, so today, as you mentioned there, we got the full lowdown on Foxtel's new news streaming service. Uh, We had heard that it was going to be called News Flash, but as it turns out, it's just going to be called Flash and will be launching in October. Uh, as we'd previously reported, xnews.com.au editor-in-chief Kate DeBrito will play a central role in the service and Foxtel today confirmed that she'll serve as its executive director. Foxtel also said that it will include more than 20 local and global news sources, uh, but where those will come from is still yet to be confirmed. It's previously been reported that Sky News Australia, Fox News and CNN may form part of the programming, but it sounds like we'll find out more and and those exact exact um, details on Foxtel's group strategy day, which is at the end of the month on September thirtieth. 
Foxtel CEO Pat Delaney in, in today's announcement was pretty coy in terms of those details as well. Uh, and he said, Flash won't be what the market expects and will be more than simply aggregating live channels, which is probably what people would expect it to deliver. When I spoke with him last month as well, he also said he believes there's definitely room for more single genre streaming brands in the market. So this might not be the last streaming service that we see from Foxtel in the next couple of years. And all of this, of course, comes off the back of News Corp revealing its financial results for its streaming services recently, which saw growth of US $188 million or 10% over the financial year ending 30th of June. That is, of course, globally. Uh, locally, paid subscribers across KO, Binge and Foxtel now cracked the $2 million mark. Uh, and, and some more results that came through recently as well were, were those from Telstra, who, when they released their annual financial report, hailed Foxtel's subscriber growth, um, as they obviously have investment in Foxtel as well, and it says they're well positioned for the future. And all this comes after you mentioned there, Liv, that Foxtel launched its IQ5 box a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so what that is, is a plug and play setup that requires no cable, unlike traditional Foxtel boxes, and will allow users to stream up to 50,000 hours of content with no cable or satellite. It will definitely be worth keeping an eye on the uptake of IQ5. And, and I think as we have discussed on the pod recently, whether we see you know users switch across from IQ3, IQ4, across to IQ5, um, Foxtel have said they're going to you know, continue to maintain the infrastructure for those boxes. So it will be really interesting to see where the new streamers come from for IQ5. But yeah, news flash, or sorry, flash as it will be called, it will be really interesting to see what the uptake will that will be, especially on sort of a, a personal streaming level. And Emma, you reported on Deloitte's survey earlier this week. What were the main takeaways from that? Yeah, so Deloitte's 10th edition of the Media Consumer Survey showed that 47% of respondents indicated they would be willing to view advertising on their streaming services in exchange for a 30% discount on their subscription. The report noted that 56% of millennials and 54% of Gen Z willing to expose them, uh, were willing to expose themselves to commercial messages compared to only 18% of those aged 66 or older. Uh, Deloitte also added that as free-to-air viewing shifts from live television to BVOD on devices, particularly for younger generations, willingness to engage with advertisements may be a challenge. Uh, The report, however, also found that respondents were not enthusiastic about engaging with advertisements um, on smartphones, uh, 20% of them uh, to be exact, and 12% on laptops. We also looked at another study by Telsite called Australian Subscription Entertainment Study for 2021, which found SVOD streaming music and games related subscriptions all experienced strong year-on-year growth driven by the demand for home entertainment and greater acceptance of the subscription model. Around 78% of Australian households um, had at least one entertainment subscription at the end of June 2021, an increase from 65% three years earlier. Uh, What they also mentioned, subscribing households now average 4.3 entertainment services, up from 2.7 in June 2018, and that was largely driven by SVOD subscriptions. Interesting. And another report that you covered, Emma, the Year 13 report on what Gen Z actually do online also provided some pretty interesting insights. Can you share those as well? 
Yeah, that was an interesting one. Gen Z continues to be one of the hardest to reach generations, consuming content and media almost exclusively via their phones and laptops. So it's increasingly critical for brands to address how to engage with them. Uh, it showed that digital youth engagement platform Year 13 actually did a report um, and they labelled it what Gen Z actually do online that showed 43% of Gen Z audiences never engage with traditional print media, which is obviously magazines or newspapers. A further 86% of Gen Z audiences say they regularly use YouTube, while 32% spend one to two hours on a streaming service, and 85% say their favourite streaming service is Netflix. However, just 8% of respondents watch free to air or Foxtel. So that's a really interesting statistic. And up next, Joan Warner is leaving CRA after two decades. Commercial Radio Australia's long-serving CEO, Joan Warner, will step down at the end of March 2022. Warner has been in the role since 2001, and CRA revealed today its board asked Warner to stay through to the end of Q1 next year after she initially intended to finish at the end of this year. Her departure will leave a significant void, and of course there are already questions floating around as to who might replace her. Xander, what are the key takeaways from the announcement and did it come as a shock to the industry? Yeah, I think it definitely shocked some this morning. I sort of had my phone blowing up with a few different messages from people both at radio stations and and in trade media um, about it. But I think that was probably more because it's such a big piece of news rather than a surprising piece of news. Um, You obviously have to consider that 20 years is a pretty good innings in a role like the one that Joan's been in. And and with radio finally moving away from the paper diary system, it probably feels like the right time for her to step away. Um, In terms of how best to reflect on her time at Commercial Radio Australia, she's been a pretty steady hand, Um, generally, you know, kept the industry on a united front during that time. Uh, We really haven't seen the infighting that we've seen among the TV networks between the radio networks. and, and, And I think it's fair to say that she's played no small part in that. She's also overseen CRA during what's been, you know, an incredibly disruptive period in the Australian media industry, particularly the last sort of 10 to 15 years. And just sort of reflecting back of some of it, uh, significantly and much like many other media in Australia, digitisation has been a big step during the time that, that Joan's been at the helm of CRA. DAB plus digital radio rolled out in Australia in 2009 across the five capital cities. But testing for that was was taking place as far back as 1999. And digital radio has grown significantly since then, you know, now integrated with cars, apps, including CRA's radio app, smart speakers, and obviously the variety of uh, network streaming channels that you can access radio on now too. And of course, we've obviously, as I mentioned there, had the announcement that paper diaries will begin to be phased out in favor of streaming data, uh, obviously the wearable watches and, and e-diaries too. So I guess you could argue, reflecting on her time at CRA, that that maybe the body's been a bit slower than would be ideal when it comes to embracing change and adopting technological change, but there has still been a lot achieved in the time that Warner was CEO. And you mentioned there that obviously your phone's been ringing <laughs> quite a bit this morning following the the news of her departure. What's been the general sentiment uh, in response to that? And also, are there any thoughts or tips on as to who might replace her in the hot seat? 
Yeah, definitely a few tips. Uh, so uh, after the announcement came out this morning, I spoke to a few former big network content directors and a few other radio insiders, and and one theme sort of kept coming up um, in terms of reflecting back on Jones' time at CRA, and it is something I alluded to earlier. Generally, people see Warner as someone who kept the peace quite well. I also had a chat to um, Umbrella's editor-at-large, Tim Burrows, who said that she really managed to keep the industry speaking as one, um, while others told me that she did particularly well um, you know, when the content side of all the commercial networks were, were run by men, and, and they still are. And with the exception of Kathy O'Connor's time as CEO of Nova, they all have had and still have male CEOs as well. Uh, despite that, there was a general sentiment that the Australian industry, you know, probably should have shown a bit more growth, particularly in in getting a um, a bigger slice of the media spend pie in the time that that Joan was in charge, especially in the last ten years. And and as well, you know, there was a sentiment that the industry should probably have moved away from the paper diaries rating system well before now. In terms of who's in the box seat to be the next CEO of Commercial Radio Australia, there wasn't a standout candidate that was sort of reflected in in people I spoke to. I, I think that, you know, one thing that was that came through uh, was was off the back of the fact that CRA has obviously asked Joan to stay on for an extra quarter to allow them time to find someone to replace her. So I don't think it'll be an easy task. Uh, Tim said to me that, that Joe Dick, who who previously or who recently came on board as chief commercial officer, probably hasn't been there long enough yet to step into that role. Um, and he also said that if CRA does hire from within one of the networks, they're at risk of you know some tribalism there. But there were some other interesting names bandied about. Um, Grant Blackley could step into the role. He's been the chair of CRA for a number of years now, so he'd have the relationships and probably stature to do it. Uh, former Macquarie Radio CEO Adam Lang was another interesting name that came up. He's currently working on Move 2.0 with the Outdoor Media Association. So he'd obviously bring that mix of radio and, and industry body experience. And one source told me that he's a really good lobbyist too and, and CRA could really use that now. And another interesting name that came up if CRA wanted to get someone not currently working in radio was Optus's VP Product Development TV and Content, Clive Dickens. Uh, so Clive has served on several industry boards in his time in, in the industry, including the IAB and Freeview Australia. So he's got that, you know, board experience. And before Optus, he was the chief digital of Seven West Media. So he served in quite a senior position at a big media organization. And he's also got radio chops too, having been the director of innovation at Southern Cross Stereo for a few years earlier last decade. And he was also the co-founder and chief operating officer of Absolute Radio in the UK. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned there, not one name coming through uh, really strongly. And I think, you know, whoever it is, it'd be really interesting to see who takes on that role and perhaps an unenviable task as, you know, moving the the entire industry across to a new rating system is, is not going to be easy. Yes. And as we've seen many times this year also, um, not uncommon for uh, returning expats to show up in those senior roles uh, given the current environment. So we'll just have to wait and see. Should be an interesting uh, appointment story when it eventually does happen. Next, Callum talks to Nine's Michael Stevenson and Adrian Swift. Head of Content, Production and Development at Nine Network, Adrian Swift and Nine's Chief of Sales Officer, Michael Stevenson. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. 
Thanks for having me. Our, our slate. <laughs> uh, so, a week out from the upfront, um, I guess Steve, I'll start with you. How do you think it went? Anything you'd change? Uh, and I can imagine you'd be hoping uh, this is the last virtual upfront. Oh, do you know what? There's there are pros and cons. Um, of course, there's nothing like you know, sort of waiting behind um, behind the set, waiting to go out on stage in front of a few thousand people to get the to get the heartbeat racing. But um, you know, and so I, and I really do miss that. And hopefully, hopefully next year we'll be able to have an in person event. But at the same time, I don't think it'll ever be only an in person event. I think the hybrid model in the future will be the way in which we'll think about upfronts. You know, there were. Um, about 6,000 people uh, viewed our stream uh, last week. So the ability to reach everybody um, en masse around the country at the same time with the key messages, you know, is is really valuable to us. And the feedback that I've had from everybody that I've spoke to so far has been overwhelmingly positive. And, you know, they continue to see our strength and leadership in both content, in data and technology, um, and that we're evolving the way in which big brands and marketers are thinking about um, how to connect with consumers across all of our platforms. So I think all of the key messages landed. Um, so I'm really pleased with the way it went. And um, I guess a good place to start would be we, following the upfront, we went to a, a, a range of buyers across Australia just to get their thoughts on how things went. Um, and the impression we kind of got was that there has been a little bit of a focus taken away from TV this year. Um, also one of the, the buyers saying that the, the content slate was in a way playing it safe with the return of many existing formats and also a couple of fresh ones in there. Adrian, what do you think of that? And uh, if not, wh- where has the focus shifted to? Uh, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's true. God, uh, if you could see the white knuckle ride that was will our formats work in 2021, you would know that there's nothing safe in television. We introduced two massive new formats, Geek and um, and Celebrity Apprentice last year. Now, Celebrity, both 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 were comebacks, but remember, both were cancelled after their ratings had dropped. So, you know, that's not a, that's that was a big, big thing for us to do. And this year we've got, well, we've got, we've got two big new formats this year in Parental Guidance and then Country Home Rescue, uh, and Snackmasters, three big new ones this year. So, you know, in television, that's that's kind of big. You know, we're not we're not relying on on the block and maths, uh, you know, to to do all the heavy lifting. Albeit the fact that they do do a lot of the heavy lifting, I think we're taking lots of risks. And I think where we are taking risks is in shows that work not just as uh, scheduled broadcast propositions you know things like love island are probably far more a digital commission than they are a broadcast commission geek we love because it does incredibly well in on social media um you know it's no i think we're taking risks but we're taking risks uh in line with what the core of the upfronts was which is we're more than just a broadcast proposition yeah and um you know there's a there is a heavy focus also on the the reality model and i know this has been quite successful with people, I guess, being in home and in lockdown. Um, do you think that there's a possibility that at some point we will see a kind of fatigue towards reality shows? Oh, every couple of years we all look at each other and go, surely there'll be a fatigue towards reality shows. And every, and so what we do is we gingerly try and do something that isn't reality, reality and it is furiously rejected by the audience. So, look, it's a little bit like someone in America in 1963 
you know, halfway through I Love Lucy going, gee, I think sitcoms have had their day. I don't, I don't think it works like that. But, look, here's the thing. I, I, think, I think you've got to mix it up. So I think what we tried to do with reality was with things like Lego Masters with Hamish, we just tried to blow up all the tropes of reality to give reality more, to, to, just to reinvigorate the genre. And then around the edges what we're trying to do is things like Snack Masters aren't really in the in the true reality model. Yeah, there's competition, but it's not they're not playing to a, an endpoint. Things like the 100, which, you know, with Andy Lee, um, things like parental gu- guidance. But the things I'm really proud of, things like emergency and paramedics, there's a lot in what we're doing and in Missing Persons and Australia Behind Bars, which were two new things we announced at the upfronts, again, probably TXing this year. Um, there's a lot we're doing that's outside reality. So I guess what we're trying to do is tiptoe through the things we know people love and then around the edges show them things that they don't know we, they want yet, but in the way that broadcast television does so well, sell them something and then ho- hope they love it. Yeah. And I think um, looking at figures, we have seen a kind of a decline in the, the, the ratings for shows like MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules uh, in recent years with, you know, 2020 aside. Um, how do you think that Snack Masters will, I guess, cut through differently to those other food models? Oh, it's, it's, it's such a different thing. So how, how do I describe it? Snack Masters, is, is, it's almost a retro show. It's about those snacks that you love so in the first four that we will, this four that we've done, Twisties, Whopper, Cadbury Favourites and The Drumstick, all Australian uh, snacks, uh, great chefs replicating seemingly simple things uh, and being judged by the people who physically make the snacks. It's, 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 you learn, I mean, we've got some brilliant old Twisties ads that are just fantastic some brilliant old Whopper ads. We've got Jack Cowan actually serving the Whoppers. So I think I think what it does is if 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 MasterChef is beautifully made and wonderful and truly presents a, a, an amateur chef with a professional potential professional career and is very po-faced, Snack Masters, despite the fact that we have Po involved, uh, Snack Masters <laughs> also po-faced, I guess, uh, does something completely different. It's it's much more about the fun of food and the enjoyment of food. So yeah, I think it'll. You know, who knows if it'll work? I'm pretty confident that it's great. I've seen the rushes and they're fantastic. Anna Polyvu, a vegetarian who only makes desserts, cooking a Whopper is one of the best things you'll ever see. Uh, but, look, I, I think it'll appeal to a very different audience. I think it'll appeal to kids and I think it'll appeal to adults who've grown up with those snacks. Making me hungry coming up on lunchtime. <laughs> Good. Uh- <laughs> And Steve-O, um, you know, in response to that earlier one with some of the buyers saying that the focus has kind of shifted a little bit away from TV this year, is that a case of, you know, Nines up front just gets bigger every year and you've got more to present? Or where do you see the focus really being this year? Yeah, you know, we've, over the last couple of years, we have strategically built a marketing platform for brands. So as a company, we have asset, we have television assets, of course. We've got streaming assets in Nine Now. We've got on-demand assets. We've got radio publishing and digital assets. So we are, we have a breadth of, a breadth of opportunity that is unlike anyone else. So our upfronts will always be different. But at our very, very core, we are a content company. And so, you know, as Adrian pointed out, 
we'll have more locally produced Australian content this year than ever. Um, you know, yes, there's a spine of reality that goes through the schedule at 7.30, which gives us this great consistency of audience delivery um, and allows you to go into into the, the rest of the evening from a format point of view. But again, as, as Swifty pointed out, there's a whole range of interesting um, observational documentaries. There's 8,000 hours of sport. There's eight or nine hours a day of news. And of course, um, two huge new Australian dramas in After the Verdict and um, an under, Underbelly obviously returning as a franchise. So there's so much to look forward to in our schedule. And, you know, I, I'm in awe of Adrian and Michael Healy and Hamish in terms of how they construct that schedule because there's this consistency of 2554 audience delivery that we're renowned for. But then you bring in Snack Masters and you bring, you bring in parental guidance and you kind of layer these formats on top of the existing schedule like we did with Geek and Apprentice this year and you just build greater depth into your evening. I, I mean, the, the 100 with Andy Lee has got to be the, one of the best examples this year of doing that. So, you know, giving us purity of demo into into 9 o'clock is, is a, real, a real advantage for advertisers. But, you know, we focused on three things that are up front. It was content, uh, TV, radio content, publishing and digital content. Um, of course, our data proposition and uh, the development of, of Galaxy to make it easier to buy total TV and total audio, which, of course, are going to be big themes. And, yeah, just um, on the kind of uh, the demos you were talking there, do you think that uh, this will give you an opportunity to kind of make, make up or consolidate ground in that 16 to 39? Or is interesting you know looking back on some comments from uh rod press earlier this year where he he basically was saying that 10's the place to go for the young socially progressive uh audience and i think james warburton referred to that those comments as uh as being a bit desperate in the uh in the aftermath what 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 did you make of that well it's not my not my place to uh <laughs> to cast dispersion on the quality of uh, my competitors audience but in terms of the volume um, you know, we've just, we, we are focused and obsessed by the demographics. So 16 to 39-year-olds, 25 to 54-year-olds and grocery shoppers with children. Everything that we create from a TV point of view is focused on delivering in those demos. And we're the leader, we've been the leader for a number of years and we're the leader again and we'll be the leader at the end of the year. Um, why? Because our content is more focused on those demographics and increasingly um, how those audiences transcend into both live streaming and on demand. So when you start to think about that total television ecosystem and that total television rating, you start to see just how many people are consuming our um, locally locally produced content, and that's why we continue to be the leader in any of those demographics um, every day of the year. It's incredibly, uh, it's really good for us in programming just to look at those total television uplifts. When you're getting a 29% uplift in 2554 on the block, you kind of go, okay, right, that, uh, that's, that's, you know, th th that says a lot, you know, th th and, and the fact that people are moving means of consumption, you know, that's, that's great and coming with us. That's why so many of our commissions are commissioned with linear consumption and digital consumption in mind. And Swifty mentioned earlier on uh, Beauty and the Geek. I think that's one of the great, that's one of the best examples because, 19% of the audience, 19% of the consumption of Beauty and the Geek this year was consumed via a live stream. Mm -hmm. That's someone not, not connecting through an antenna in a traditional sense, but literally streaming 
um, the Beauty and the Geek on Nine through their app on a connected television. That's enormous. So whereas, you know, a couple of years ago, it was only Love Island that did those types of things. Increasingly, we're seeing more and more of our content uh, be distributed across all of those platforms and be consumed across them. And that's massively uh, it's a huge advantage for advertisers because, of course, you can deliver more targeted advertising. And um, another big focus this year, as you mentioned before, was the kind of um, the, the focusing on, on Galaxy, pushing buyers and clients into that direction and um, with it being launched into regional. But c- can you ever see a time where you're using CPM-based buying for prime time or tentpole pro- programming? Yeah, we, we can do it tomorrow. Uh, we built Gal- Galaxy with that in mind, and it's one of the things I'm so proud of is we built Galaxy uh, four, or, four or five years ago for what we thought would the, the future of television would look like. You know, we got most of that right, some of it wrong, um, but what we did think was that the future was going to be automated and addressable. And the only reason we haven't turned Nine Galaxy on for prime time on the main channel is that it's not the way media buyers buy TV yet. Um, you know, they still want to buy, uh, for the right reasons, 30-second spots in the right environment, which will always be a part of what we do. Um, but they build, they build reach quickly in prime time on the main channel and then supplement and build frequency through off-peak and multi-channels. That's what we've automated to this point. But there's a number of stages, I think. You know, we're at 40% of our inventory, our off-peak and multi-channel inventory goes through the Galaxy platform. I think it should be 60 to 70%. Once we get to that point, I think you are at a point then where the market is comfort- more comfortable and realizing the huge benefit that not optimizing on the margin delivers. And then I think you'll move into prime time. Yeah, and it, I, I remember those those figures that you mentioned just there from last week. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, this 40% number right now, are you disappointed that it's at that number? And you know, how are you going to ensure that you do get to that 60 to 70% uh, educating buyers in order to kind of shift their shift across? Yeah, look, I mean, to be at 40%, which is an enormous number of spots um, that are fully automated, that no one touches, they just deliver 100% of what someone bought is a pretty incredible milestone in a quite a short period of time. I am very impatient <laughs> And I just think, why would you not do it this way? Why would you do it the old-fashioned way when there is a better way that's quicker, more mm-hmm. efficient? You don't have to chase around make goods. We just deliver what you bought. I don't understand why people wouldn't do that or move there quicker. There are realities, of course, and one of those realities is that the way in which TV was priced in a spot-based market was different to the way in which our live streaming and on-demand is priced because it's a digital product. So it's priced against a CPM or a cost per thousand. So what we've done, and we announced that our upfronts, is move off-peak and multi-channel buying to a CPM as well. So the currency, if you like, is the same. Another example how we're trying to make it easier and easier for media buyers to transact total television. We built Galaxy for that reason, um, and it is the future. There is absolutely no doubt. So we're ready. So Adrian, I wanted to ask you um, uh, if, if uh, back on the content side of things, are you surprised at the the performance of the voice in terms of ratings since um, since Nine dropped it? I know uh, there was the kind of um, perception that it was one of the the, the, the lower end performing shows on your slate. Who am I surprised? I, I, we knew it would do well. It's a format we loved and still love and. 
let go of with a heavy heart, but it just wasn't performing in the terms that Michael was just talking about. And the reality of the voice for us was it was skewing older and older. And um, there was very little digital interaction. And we made a calculation. And, you know, we didn't, remember, we didn't let go of the voice. We stepped away from it. We wanted to rest it for a year and bring it back. Now they decided to sell it to another network. That's fine. You know, there was no, you know, we had fully anticipated that happening. But, you know, I think I think the show did well and I congratulate them. But you, they had two sort of pretty big structural advantages, the platform of the Olympics going into it and a, and a national and a, and a lockdown in the two biggest states. So, great. I completely acknowledge that. But for us, it wasn't working and we we let go of it because it wasn't doing the things we needed to do which was to address that grocery buyers and kids 16 to 39, 25, 54 audience that engaged not just in the show itself, but live streamed it, caught up on it and engaged with it on social media. And to be honest with you, on a sort of cost per uh, uh, interaction basis, um, Geek did probably did a significantly better job. And it also became over time, um, it became a bit lumpy for advertisers. So, you know, what we, what, our clients want is this consistency of audience delivery. Whereas for mm-hmm. us, the voice became, you know, the, the first few weeks with the blinds was really strong and then it tailed off really quickly. So it became harder and harder to deliver that consistent audience over time. And it was hard to integrate into. I mean, it had that, you know, one of the greatest impediments of, of shows at the moment. It was quite difficult to integrate into in a way that made sense. And, and frankly, that's got a, that's a, that is a, 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 a measure by which we, we, we judge all the shows we commission. Yeah. And then um, just on a kind of wider strategy point, um, so obviously it's been about six months since Sneezeby came into the role. Um, how, has, how has this kind of first half year been? Do you think much significant has changed? I think he's been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, it's, it's interesting, you know, um, COVID has fundamentally changed consumer behaviour. I think that's quite obvious. Um, and there are therefore all of the parts in our business are at really interesting points of inflection. So you think about television, it's this whole notion of total TV, the fact that consumption is now live linear, live streaming and on demand. From an audio point of view, we're seeing the same thing happening. You know, 15% of our audience is, is consuming our, our talk um, radio content via a live stream now. Um, and podcast is becoming increasingly more important to our business. And then in publishing, you're seeing this this really interesting um, point where you've got print and digital advertising and subscription all coexisting. And all three of those businesses are transitioning quickly towards their digital future. So, you know, I think Mike's joined our business as the CEO. Of course, he's been with us in our company for a long time at a really interesting point because we get to accelerate each of those businesses based on the changing changes in consumer behavior that we're witnessing. And I think from a content standpoint, you know, he did a really, he did a brilliant content job at Stan and, and he's actually been very supportive in terms of what we've done in content uh, on our side of the business. And I think the other thing that's just worth noting in is that I think he's been instrumental in bringing nine and Stan a lot closer together in terms of how we work, how we acquire things and how we commission things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I read uh, yesterday morning, I, I don't know if this will, you know, you'll be able to give any specific answer to this, but, you know, in the City Morning Herald, one of the nine mouse heads that um, 
the the rights to the Premier League would be coming up uh, in the next little while. Could very well complement Nine's slate of sports, which you announced uh, last week. Do you think there's any interest there? Couldn't possibly say, Callum. <laughs> There's always, I, you know, interest, there's always interest in everything, but I refuse to confirm or deny. <laughs> and I think that's right. You know, Mike's been, we, we have always been, and Mike continues to be um, vocal about the fact that we always look at everything, but everything must make commercial sense. So I re- didn't read that article. It looked like it came with a really big price tag. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, that's right. $80 million a year is the uh, the quote, which, you know, it's a lot of money, but still dwarfs what they what they pay over there. So, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for for joining me, both Adrian and Steve. It's been great to catch up with you both. Thanks so much for your time. Take it easy, guys. And that's it for this week. Thanks again to our sponsor Sesame, and thanks to everyone for joining the chat. A special thanks to Xander who finishes up at Mumbrella tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks, Liv. Thank you.